We do not follow man-made fancy or fable, but the word of the living God. He alone has claim to our hearts and allegiances. Let us heed him as he speaks from his word. Um, Today's scripture lesson is Psalm 2, and I'll give you a few moments to find that in the Red Pew Bible if you would care to follow along. Again, it's Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The things of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my uh, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son today. I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Visiting with us this summer, we're walking through some of the Psalms um, in the book of Psalms. And the book of Psalms was the hymn book of ancient Israel. We talked about that last week. But it is a collection of what were in many ways meant to be the songs that God's people sang together. They cover a diversity of topics that maybe we're not used to thinking about in the songs that we sing together but that it is instructive to our hearts to pay attention. So let's pray and turn to this second psalm. Father, I just pray that you would be near to us this morning as we reflect on your word, that you would teach us to place our hope in your kingdom, that you would subdue our hearts, all of us, as we are sinners by your Holy Spirit, and you would watch over me, a sinner, as I seek to proclaim your word. pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why do the nations rage? That is how this psalm begins, and that is a sentiment often when I um, look at the news online or whatever that I feel resonates with me. This isn't just a reality for ancient Israel, but this psalm is written reflecting on the turmoil of the world. We talk about sin and how it breaks things often, and it's true of all human sin— But it's especially pronounced when that sin is mixed with power. It is bad enough when individuals harm each other or wrong each other. It is unimaginably worse when you give those sinful people armies or corporate accounts with which they can put their sin into action. In the face of that mixture of sin and power, I think that we can often feel discouraged and afraid in our world. And one of the things I love about the Psalms 
is that they look with very clear eyes at all the different ways that we can struggle and be confronted with brokenness, and it includes that sort of brokenness, the reality of wrestling with the world where power and these structures of power are mixed with sin in ways that break things. I think in a lot of our worship songs, we just tend to sing about individual struggles in these kind of vague ways. But the Psalms are full of declarations like these first few verses. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. The rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. The powers of this world are pictured as hostile powers making war on heaven, doing their best to overthrow God and tear down his throne. And that fits, in a sense, with the world as I experience it. When I watch things play out on the news, when I think about the planet that I live on, my heart feels like in many ways that is true. And so this psalm meets us there, and that's why we then need the proclamation that it's built on, which is that the Lord has established his king in Jesus, that Jesus is king, that our hope in the face of that sin and power that's mixed in our world is not that suddenly people will start behaving well or that we can fix it, but that Jesus is on the throne. That's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Let's back up and explain why we're saying that that's what this psalm is about. Um, So first, this psalm is is the first of several royal psalms, which are called that because they're these psalms in ancient Israel that are meant to celebrate the coronation of the king. And there's a couple of things we need to keep in mind when we think about that reality of this Old Testament king that Israel has. One um, is that Israel's king in the Old Testament has authority only because God has delegated it to him. They rule Israel because God, in truth, rules Israel and has put them in that place. So example, verse 6 of our psalm, God says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain which makes this monarchy in Israel something different than just like, like the royal wedding that we, wa- that we all might have watched a couple weeks ago, right? It's something that is meant to be seen as ordained by God. But because Israel's king gets their authority from God, we also recognize that Israel's actual kings in the Old Testament fail to live up to the picture of kingship that this and the other royal psalms give. Here the king is pictured as God's perfect servant, But no Israelite king actually lived up to that. Even the Davids and Solomons, who were famous for it, did not live up to that calling. David certainly didn't, as we're going to talk about next week, actually, when we look at Psalm 51. But so, the king is meant to be God's representative, but that didn't, in ancient Israel, deliver the king from also having a real responsibility to live that out, to reign with God's justice and truth. And if they didn't have that we see that God um, chastises them and ultimately breaks the kings of Israel, just like he breaks the nations in this psalm, which then leads to the ultimate point of psalms like this one, which is that ultimately we need to understand these royal psalms as pointing to Jesus as their full fulfillment and not simply an earthly king. 
That's the argument of the whole New Testament, that we see this image in the Old Testament given of something like kingship, but Israel's kings are nowhere near what the image communicates. And that's because ultimately that image is meant to point forward to a full and perfect fulfillment in Jesus. And that's how the New Testament uses this psalm, which it quotes quite a bit. So, for example, in Acts 4, Peter uses that quote we just read about the nations raging and the kings plotting. And then he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Which is to say, Peter's saying, ultimately, the ultimate picture we get of these nations plotting and trying to overthrow the Lord's anointed is in the crucifixion of Jesus. Or Paul, in Acts 13, does the same thing with verse 7 in our psalm. He says, we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. So he's saying, in a sense, right, this Old Testament king that God is vindicating and putting on the throne um, is, is, is like God's son, right? That's what it would have meant to the ancient Israelite reading it, that somehow God's in a special relationship. But Paul's saying, really, it points to something more, that somehow the king now is Jesus Christ, the son of God. So as we come to this psalm on this side of the New Testament, this is meant to teach us about King Jesus. Not just some curiosities about the Old Testament monarchy, but what it means for Jesus to be the fulfillment of the hopes that we find in this psalm. And so here's what I want us to do. I just want us to look at this psalm and recognize three things that it shows us about Jesus' kingdom in the face of the brokenness of the world. And the first thing is that it tells us that Jesus' kingdom is opposed. Jesus' reign is and will be opposed. That we shouldn't be surprised that this world is, in a sense, at war with the good kingdom of Jesus. That's the image we get in verses 1 through 3. We read them already, but the nations are conspiring, the peoples are plotting, the kings of the earth are rising up, and ultimately what they're saying is let us break their chains, meaning the Lord and his anointed King Jesus, and throw off their shackles. In its original setting, of course, this was a picture of the nations around Israel, right? That, um, that the Lord was working probably through David to bring those nations under his authority, and they did not want to be under the Lord's authority. They wanted their authority to be absolute. It's important to recognize in the way the psalm talks about it that the problem is not that they dislike some human being's authority and kingship, but God's, right? This isn't just that they would prefer political independence. It's that they want moral and cosmic independence from the reign of God himself. And the New Testament applies that picture to Jesus and to our experiences as God's people. The nations in the New Testament, just as here, are opposed to Jesus and his reign. They reject his authority and kingship, which is why, as we said, Peter applies this text to Jesus' crucifixion. More than that, the New Testament also says that we, as Jesus' followers, should expect a sort of hostility and distance from the powers of this world. We should, in a sense, expect the nations to oppose us because Jesus is a king. The nations are opposed to God's good rule in Jesus, this psalm says. And just to be clear about this, because I feel like we probably don't hear it right, when we talk about the nations, as scripture often does, 
our nation is one of those nations, right? I think we have a tendency to hear this and think that, you know, our country is Israel, and this is about all those countries that we don't get along with, right? But that is not how Scripture works. God's kingdom is not the same thing as the place that we live. And so when this psalm seems to suggest to us that there is a bent to all of the political powers and worldly powers that are against God's good authority— we should be thinking not just about those places out there that we dislike, but about the place that we live as well. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't also good things about the nations, just to be clear. Scripture teaches in other places this idea of common grace. If you were in my adult education class, we briefly spoke about it this morning, which is to say that God graciously gives truth and beauty and wisdom all over in the world, and we can also see and appreciate that. And there's a sense in which kings and rulers can serve God in this psalm, too. If you read verses 10 and 11, it says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. So we should pray and hope this, you know, in the nation where we live and for the nations. But we shouldn't assume or expect it. That is a common theme in the Old and New Testament which is that ultimately the powers of this world are going to live in tension with the kingdom of God. They're going to oppose it and be hostile to it. It should teach us that we should not expect that as Jesus' followers, we will always fit or live comfortably um, within the places in this world that he has put us. Um, I feel like this is a hard point, but let me just—here is why I feel like this matters, all right? In— the Bible uses all these different pictures for sort of worldly powers that are set up against God, pictures like Babylon, for example. But in the book of Revelation, one of the pictures that it gives is of the beast, right? The beast initially seems to represent Rome, but then is used to just kind of represent as a whole, like the political powers of this earth that are set against God's kingdom. Um, it's the beast, all right? And every nation, in a sense, has that inclination, and in our nation, maybe we did some really good things to restrain the beast. I am not going to, like, parse all of the history, but, I mean, maybe we did a remarkably good job of chaining it and muzzling it. And maybe there are also some really good works of God's common grace that we can appreciate in our country. Even then, it's imperfect, right? I say that, and I, want, I also want to be careful, because, like, I don't know if you were a 19th century slave that you would feel quite that same way, but it's true that we did a lot of good things to try to restrain that the beast and we should be grateful for that but i worry and i think that what happened to us somewhere in the process is we forgot that it was a beast at all at the end of the day that we muzzled and chained this tiger and then we put it in our living room and told it to play nicely with the children and came to think of it as a pet instead of as the threat to jesus's kingdom that it is and that's why we as american christians have been so unprepared and so surprised over the last 50 years when maybe it became increasingly clear that it wasn't as friendly as we thought it was. Scripture is full of reminders that the world should and will always be a hostile place for us as believers. And I think we forgot that. Or if I can say it in a way that doesn't have all the imagery, I think for a long time we had an idea that we could be faithful to Jesus and live comfortable lives respected by the world. Um, that those things were just both naturally and easily going to be a part of how we lived, and that they would never come into conflict. And what that meant is that while we loved Jesus, we also learned to love the adoration and affirmation of the world. 
And now, when many of us feel like those things maybe don't fit as comfortably as they used to, it's not clear to us anymore which one we love more. And that is an enormous problem for us. Um, I don't know that we ever really counted up the cost um, of having to choose between loving Christ and loving the world. The psalm reminds us that as we love and serve King Jesus, all of us will always live in hostile territory in this life. That should shape our expectations of how we're going to experience it, which is a pessimistic place to start, right? So that, um, that is a part of this reality that this psalm reminds us of. But then there's also two good hopeful things that I think it speaks to us as we grapple with that reality of our place in the world. And the first is that Jesus' kingdom, while it's opposed, is also good. Jesus' kingdom is good. Uh, This psalm reminds us of several ways that Jesus' kingdom is really remarkable when compared to the world. One is its broadness. Its broadness, which is if you look, for example, at verse 8. This is the promise that God gives. He says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the end of the earth your possession. And this is actually really important to understanding this psalm. That language of inheritance and possession in the Old Testament is usually used to communicate kind of Israel's special relationship with God, right? They are his treasured possession and they are his inheritance. But so for God to say that somehow the nations, the world as a whole is going to be your inheritance and possession, this is anticipating this reality that we now see coming true in Jesus, that God is gathering people into his kingdom from every tribe, and tongue, and nation. While all of the nations are opposed to God's rule in Scripture, King Jesus is also at work in all of the nations, creating a people in their midst. So this psalm isn't a nationalistic song about how Israel is going to blow up all the nations around it. This psalm is a celebration that somehow the nations will all be gathered in, and together they with Israel will be a part of God's people. So it looks at the divisions and the factions and the self-obsessions of our world and says instead that in Jesus, we find a kingdom that gathers people in from all of them and seeks to create peace between them. And we're reminded of God's nearness in Jesus' good kingdom. God's nearness. If you look at verse 7, he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. In the Old Testament, there's sort of this idea that this is sort of an allegory, right? That God is drawn near to his king and loves him. But in the New Testament, the claim is that somehow this is remarkably and literally true, that our king is the son of God. And here's the thing about kings. I don't think we appreciate this in our modern world where nobody really um, lives in these true monarchies of the ancient world. But in this society, it was understood that sort of the king's identity was your identity, that you existed in relationship and connection with the king, and that he stood as your identity and representative. And so for Israel to be given this promise that their king is somehow God's son is this promise of deep relationship and closeness with God. And to see it fulfilled in Jesus, who somehow God himself come as our king, we're in this even closer Um, place of nearness and relationship with God in our kingdom, that that God himself is actually our king, who we bring petitions to and live as citizens of his kingdom. And both of those points are meant to stress that there's something different about this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Our kingdom is supposed to represent God's broadness and God's nearness, his love and peace 
and goodness. We are meant to um, live in this kingdom that isn't just another faction in that turmoil of the nations, but rather that represents a better and blessed way of living in their midst. Which is why the psalm ends with the proclamation that blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus' kingdom is fundamentally not like the kingdoms of this world. And that is a crucial truth for us to recognize as we seek to understand this psalm. Because otherwise, what can happen is we let this world's ideas about kingdoms start to shape how we think about Jesus' kingdom. Even if we recognize that our citizenship is ultimately with Jesus, we can start to adopt worldly ways of thinking about what that means. It's a common theme in scripture to stress that God's kingdom is not like the ones of this earth. For example, Jesus is arrested, and he's before Pilate the governor. And Pilate says, well, are you the king of the Jews, right? And Jesus says this. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Which is to say, look, these people are bringing false charges against me, and yes, I am, a king, right? He doesn't deny it, but he says that my kingdom is somehow different. If, if my kingdom worked the way the world worked, then they'd pull out their swords and cut you all down and deliver me, but my kingdom is not of this world. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 14, in some verses we didn't get to focus on as we preached through Romans, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's responding to these people who are obsessed with these kind of worldly identity markers, Um, And he says the kingdom of God is not about these worldly things. Instead, it's about righteousness, seeking to follow God's commands. And it is about peace, seeking reconciled relationship with our fellow human beings. And it is about joy in the Holy Spirit, experiencing the gladness of our salvation. We need to hear this reality that the kingdom is different because it means that we are meant to be different. And it means that we are meant to live in Jesus' kingdom in a way that just doesn't fit with this world. One of the things that worries me, I think, when I think about our place in the world, is that we as Christians, even if we accept that that is the core of our identity, often adopt very worldly ways of thinking about what that means. So, for example, when we think about our enemies in the world, what we think we're supposed to do is nuke them from orbit. When we think about um, the challenges that this world confronts, what we think we need to do is to seize as much power as we can to kind of crush them into shape. We can do that in terms of big picture issues, and we can do that in our private lives. And that's one of the things that worries me. You get that first reality, which is just that we live in a place that's less comfortable than it used to be. And what I think our immediate impulse is then is to try to use worldly power to force it to be that place that we imagine it once was. To try to force it back into line. But the reality is that we as Christians are called to live in a different way as we're citizens of his kingdom. It shouldn't make sense in a sense to the world. When you think about Jesus's commandments, right? Love your enemies. Give to anyone who has need. Blessed are the meek and the peacemaker and the poor in spirit. Admit your faults. Be, um, seek the good of your neighbor before your own. None of that stuff fits with the kind of way that worldly power functions. That's essential, though, to being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Probably the best recognition, the best way to think about it is like this. 
when, when Scripture says that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, it's saying that, that we, are, we are, in effect, foreigners, right, in the place that we live, and it should look at us with the sort of kind of oddness that it would look at someone from a completely different place, right? You think about the way that someone— you kind of like feel like this person just doesn't culturally fit here, right? Because they grew up and are from another part of the world. That, in a sense, is how we should expect to fit in the world as Christians. If we don't, that should make us worry that maybe we're thinking in worldly ways rather than the ways of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is opposed and it's good. But then here's the ultimately good news, which is that Jesus' kingdom is triumphant. Jesus' kingdom is triumphant. So the nations are plotting against the rule of the Lord and against his anointed. Um, But the psalmist does not seem worried. In verse 4 he says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. Which is meant to be a way of picturing just how powerful God is. It's not that he's, it's not just saying like, but somehow God will win. It's saying that God is like, nah, whatever, right? When he looks at all of the powers of the world marshaled against him. And he gives two reasons that God is unconcerned in the face of them. One is because of the ultimate power of his judgment. So verse 5, he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. Or verse 9, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces with pottery. These are statements that God is breaking and overcoming the powers of the world in his judgment. I think that's important for us to think about. Um, when we talk about God's judgment, I think we tend to focus only on sort of the idea of individual judgment, just about individual people and their eternal destinies. And that is a true biblical like part of judgment, but often judgment in scripture is focused not of just of judge, God's judgment of individuals, but of God's judgments of the powers and authorities and structures of the world. God is reminding us that as powerful as they seem, he will break them in the end. I think we can feel hopeless sometimes when we look at the world because we feel like goodness is small, whereas what is evil and broken is big and strong. But part of the promise of this psalm is that while it is true that there's something broken about the structures of this world, that it is, um, that those are not the most powerful things in the universe. Not by a long shot. Judgment in scripture, um, part of that is the promise that those who are above judgment in this world will get what they deserve. When you think about the, you know, the people with power, right, and the people with wealth who somehow seem to just escape justice in the world, that the wel- when the wealthy or well-connected do terrible things and seem to get away from it, Scripture is proclaiming that that's not the end of the story. And that's actually a really important part of us living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. I think that when we think about things like loving our enemies or when we experience things like hostility in the world— um, what, can we do, what we can do is we can think, well, we need to fight back because, because where will justice come from if we don't enforce it ourselves? Um, if I don't destroy this person, they will win. But our calling as Christians is to love our enemies, not in a way that abandons our hope of justice, but in a way that has the humility and patience to trust in God's justice instead of seeking our own. The humility, meaning we recognize that God is a judge who is fairer than we are, and the patience, 
meaning that we recognize that while it's not here right now, it will ultimately come. A crucial part of living at peace in this world is recognizing that God will ultimately make it right. We cannot stop recognizing that because when we do, it tempts us to start behaving in worldly ways. That's the reason, I think, that we often behave like the kingdom of this world because we really believe that if we don't just, like, force our victory through by our own power, that we're doomed. But we worship a God who will, in the end, render all things justly and rightly. And that should give us a proper sense of humility when we think about how we live and move. So we trust in God's justice— But we also, even more than that, trust in Jesus' salvation, in the ultimate power of Jesus' salvation. If you look at verses 6 and 7 again, they're really the hinge of the psalm. In verse 6, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. So God declares this judgment of the nations, and it looks forward to this ultimate future judgment, but the core of his judgment is actually to say, I have put my king on my holy mountain. And then when it says, who is that king? Verse 7, he says then that this is the one who is um, my son, um, that I have become your father. What is so terrifying to the kings of this world isn't just that God is going to ultimately destroy them, but that God has established Jesus as his true king in the midst of them. See, how does the world get its power, right? Part of the answer is that it makes us afraid and threatens to destroy us. But a bigger part, I think, is that it promises us some sort of salvation. That that it comes to us and it says, look, um, the root of its power is that it says, we have authority over what is truly good, right? We can give you peace, we can give you joy, we can give you a place of prosperity and happiness and security. And then it threatens to take them away. Those things together are what really give power in the world. And the problem is... That, um, that God is saying here that that claim to authority that they have, they don't even have that authority. I mean, like the world says, like, we can make you safe, right? Um, it says if you do these things that, you, that we want you to do, that you can be secure. And if you don't do them, you won't be. Um, but the truth is that the universe is in God's control, right? That he holds our safety and security in a way that this world cannot begin to touch. That in the end, it cannot do a single thing to add a single day to our lives or a single hair to our heads, but that God can and does protect and hold us. The world claims to control our blessing. It says that if we do the things it wants us to do, that we will prosper. And um, that if we don't, then we're going to lose what we have. But what God says as the creator and sustainer of all things is that every good and perfect gift comes from his hands. And while we won't always get all the stuff we want in this world, he will give us what we need. He will give us our daily bread and ultimately will give us heaven and earth made new and an eternal inheritance. And that's true of everything that this world lays claims to. Its authority is false and passing Because it does not have that control over the good. That God in truth has that control. And so while the world might oppose God in the present, he will hold us fast and carry us. And he will triumph in the end. Because salvation ultimately wins and the world is overcome by it. So what do we do with all of that? If those are the truths that scripture paints of God's kingdom, that we have this hope in this good kingdom and this triumphant kingdom, in the face of the world's opposition. 
Let me just suggest, as I think about all of that, two ways that that meets me in my life in this world today. The first is that I think it should give us a sense of ultimate peace when we think about the world. A sense of ultimate peace. I mean, all of us have all these things to be afraid of all the time, right? Every, like, kidnapping on the news and every, you know, I mean, every election, they're getting, you, they're getting us ginned up to be afraid. And, you know, I mean, we, I, you know, we worry about, like, nuclear war and stuff, right? And even beyond that, we as Christians, I feel like, are prone to this set of fears that we have that I hear a lot from, from people about how we might lose our religious freedom in this country or, I don't know, like, churches will lose their tax-exempt status. And here's the thing, when I think about all of those things, like, I'm not saying that none of those things could happen. But what I am saying is that we need to view them from the perspective that Jesus is on the throne and that he is the king. In the first place, that means that Jesus holds our true good in the present. That nothing this world gives us and nothing it can take away from us can affect the blessedness that we have by being his. That we find in his salvation and his presence. And Jesus, um, Jesus wins in the end. We know how the story ends and in the end all that is evil and broken in this world will be overcome by his good reign. That as his return, at his return... The world will be made new, and all will be made right. All of which can give us a real sense of peace in the face of this world's troubles. Not that they won't be hard, not that there won't be things that, you know, you feel kind of concerned about, but that we can look at them and say, even though I worry about these things, it's all right, because Jesus is on the throne, and he's holding me fast. So that should give us that sense of peace, and this gives us the ability to seek to do what good we can. To seek to do what good we can in the world around us. Um, in everything we've just said, I hope you don't hear that, that we're supposed to somehow abandon the world. We are called to work good in the world, to obey God and serve and be at work in it. Um, and, I mean, that's what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But having the perspective of Jesus being on the throne, I think, is really crucial to us doing that in a way that helps rather than in a way that hurts. And to understand that, let me just—there is a difference when you, with someone you know between trying to love somebody and trying to fix them, right? There's a crucial difference just in, a, in any relationship between trying to love somebody and trying to fix them. Trying to fix somebody might start from a place of feeling like you love them, right? And wanting what's good for them. But the problem is that trying to fix them rests on the results that you're able to achieve, right? That you want to make them perfect and take away all of their problems. And the problem is that you can't do that, right? And you certainly can't do that only by doing what's good. And so you start off doing the good things and trying to love them. But what you start to realize is that they're not getting there. They've still got issues. So then you start doing things that are destructive, to try to get them to change, right? That's why we all have that intuitive sense that trying to fix someone is a problem. It's because, you know, well, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to make them happy, and, and if, they're, if they're not willing to do it, then I'm just going to force them to, right? You start to manipulate them and threaten them and batter them to try to get them to change. Truly loving someone does hope the best for them and does seek their good, but it recognizes that that exists within limits and that all that we can do is seek to bless them, not to fix them. Sure, we point out ways that we worry and think that they're wrong. We seek to support and care for them and walk beside them. But we recognize that the results aren't up to us. That all we can be responsible for is the present. 
And I point that distinction out because I think that exact same distinction applies to how we think about the world as a whole. Too often, we think that our job is to fix the world. That our job is to usher in um, the world as we think that it should be. To try to achieve perfection in it through our own efforts. And the great danger of that is that this world is not perfectible by our efforts. And so... Um, and so when, the, when we do the things that we should and that, and that doesn't happen, then what we start to do is we start to do things we shouldn't that are destructive. We start to try to use force and take up the reins of power and batter and, you know, force people into being who we think they should be. But recognizing that Jesus is on the throne, that he will fix the world, and that is not something that we have authority over, gives us the freedom in the world to say that I'm going to seek to love the world and not have to fix it. That I can look at the world around me and say that Jesus is at work. That he will bring ultimate healing and peace. And so I can do what good I can to my neighbors, within the structures of the nations. I can do what good I can while recognizing that God in the end will be the one who makes all things whole. That is our hope as we think about the kingdoms and the turmoil in this world. Not that we just detach. We do seek their good but that we look at them in a way that recognizes that Jesus is ultimately king. He is bringing his kingdom out in the midst of the nations, and his kingdom will prevail. And that allows us to love and work as we are able in this world, while trusting in him to ultimately bring salvation. Would you pray with me? God and Father, I just pray that you would be with all of us as we often feel the weight of the turmoil of the world around us pray that you would calm our fears and give us peace and give you thanks that you are reigning and ruling right now and that you will continue to reign until ultimately you come and make that reign visible in Jesus Christ at his return. Pray these things in his name. Amen.